Hello and welcome to the Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. In spite of the fact that she was not feeling very much like a drive, Temple had persuaded Steve to go out with him. In the first place, he found that driving a car often helped him to solve little problems, and the constant change of scene frequently gave him new ideas. Also, he had some vague notion of keeping a sharp lookout for a likely hideout where Hardwick might be kept a prisoner. Finally, he decided that he must get away from the Royal Gate Inn, where even his very thoughts seemed to be divined by some mysterious means. As they approached the village of Skellifor, Temple felt the urgent need for a cigarette, only to find he had left his case in another coat. "'Got any cigarettes, Steve?' he asked. She opened her bag and produced an empty case. He laughed and took his foot off the accelerator preparatory to slowing down. "'Shan't be a second, he told her, jumping out and slamming the door. Then, rather to Steve's surprise, he reopened it and jumped into the car again. "'I'll move forward a bit. Not a very safe place to park at the foot of this hill,' he murmured. As he released the handbrake, Steve asked, "'What time did you arrange to meet Sir Graham?' "'I said about two. We're rather early, as a matter of fact. "'What on earth made you suggest meeting at the café at High Morford? "'Surely it would have been much easier to have waited at the inn.' "'No,' answered Temple quietly. "'I wanted to have a talk with Forbes away from the inn. "'I've got a funny sort of feeling about the Royal Gate.' "'What do you mean?' "'Everything that happens at the inn, every conversation that takes place there— "'seems by some means or other to be known to Z4. "'Steve thought for a moment. "'Yes, that's true,' she conceded at length. "'They knew, for instance, that we were starting for Aberdeen, "'and she broke off sharply as she saw her husband's attention had wandered. "'Look at that car coming down the hill,' he said quickly. "'By Timothy, it's lurching all over the place.' "'Steve followed his glance.' and saw a smart little sports car careering giddily from one side of the narrow road to the other. Fortunately, there was very little traffic in this quiet village, but the car narrowly missed a baker's cart and appeared to be about to mount the curb. Temple saw the girl driver wrench vigorously at the wheel, and the car slid back into the roadway to continue its crazy course. "'There must be something wrong with it, Paul,' cried Steve. "'The steering, or—' "'Good God!' ejaculated Temple." Look! It's Iris! The car was less than fifty yards away from them now. Iris was plainly visible. She'll never get that car straight. She'll never do it, Steve. But it can't be Iris, Steve heard herself stammering incredulously. She couldn't have got away from the detective, and there's something wrong with the steering, gasped Temple. My God! She's going for the pavement! Iris suddenly abandoned her unequal struggle with the steering and flung her arms in front of her as the car leapt over the gutter and crashed into the window of a general store. People appeared on the scene with magic celerity, and in less than two minutes well over half the population of the little village was clustered round the car. Steve had seen the figure in bright green flung violently forward at the moment of impact. Then she had instinctively turned her head away. Temple jumped out of the car. "'Wait here, Steve,' he ordered, and rushed off towards the wrecked car. He managed to push his way through the group of onlookers, some of whom obviously mistook him for a doctor. Iris was huddled in a corner of the front seat. Blood was trickling from a cut on her cheek, and her left arm hung limply over the steering wheel. Her eyes were half-closed, but she was not unconscious.' A man came rushing from a public house opposite and thrust a small glass of brandy into Temple's hand. Temple put the glass to her over-red lips and managed to force a few drops into her mouth. There was a smear of lipstick on the glass. Her eyelids fluttered the merest trifle. "'Are you all right, Iris?' he demanded urgently. She ran her tongue over the red lips and blinked at him rather uncertainly. "'What are you doing here?' she gasped, and made as if to straighten herself. 
but the well-moulded features were suddenly distorted with a violent spasm of pain, and she relapsed into her former position. It's... all right, she murmured shakily. It's only my shoulder. Bit of a sprain, I think. By Timothy, you're lucky to be alive, Temple told her. Something went wrong with the steering, she muttered in bewildered tones. I could feel it as soon as... Her voice drifted into an incoherent murmur. Suddenly her eyes opened fully and her features tightened. The swine! The damned swine! She spat out the words as viciously as her position permitted. By this time, the village policeman had arrived on the scene. Temple immediately took him aside, and after a minute's confidential talk, the officer dispersed the crowd, leaving Temple free to look after Iris. "'How did you get off the train?' he asked her. "'The train stopped at High Morford. Van Draper and Guest were waiting,' she explained with a twisted grin. "'Hell, this shoulder's worse than I thought.' Temple surveyed her with a puzzled frown for some moments. She was gingerly moving the fingers of her uninjured hand over the hurt shoulder. She was very badly shaken, and very unlike the old, assured Iris. Temple decided that this was a very opportune moment. He began to speak rapidly in soft, urgent tones. Iris, they got you off that train for a very definite purpose. They wanted to make quite certain that you wouldn't talk. Yes, "'Yes, I know,' cried Iris furiously. "'But, by God, I'll talk now, all right.' Her nerves were obviously keyed to breaking point. Somewhere in the distance, the bell of an oncoming ambulance echoed mournfully. "'Listen, Iris,' said Temple suddenly. "'I'm going to take a chance. "'Get that shoulder attended to, "'then meet me at the Shepley Hotel, High Morford.' "'The Shepley,' repeated Iris rather vaguely. "'What time?' "'Let's see,' he murmured thoughtfully. "'I'm seeing Sir Graham at two. "'Better make it five o'clock.' Five o'clock. "'All right.' "'He looked at her a little doubtfully. "'Don't worry,' she grimly assured him. "'I'll be there.' With its bell clanging, the ambulance came alongside. Two men in white coats sprang onto the pavement. "'I'll be there,' she repeated as the door closed. "'I hope so, Iris,' murmured Temple as the ambulance drove off. "'By Timothy, I hope so.' "'Was she badly hurt?' demanded Steve anxiously when Temple rejoined her. He shrugged his shoulders. Nothing very serious. She had a very lucky escape. He glanced at the clock on the dashboard. By Jove, we'll have to move or we'll be late. The cigarettes, Steve reminded him. No time now. We'll get them in High Morford. What was the matter with Iris's car? Steve was eager to know. She seemed to think it had been fixed, he replied noncommittally. But Paul, who would do that? Ah, grinned Temple enigmatically. Perhaps she'll enlighten us when we see her later on. Later on, said Steve in some surprise. He guided the car dexterously round a sharp bend. Yes, we're meeting at the Shepley Hotel. Do you think she'll be well enough? I have every reason to believe so, he said. A few seconds later, Temple heaved a sigh of relief. They were on the outskirts of High Moorford. The Purple Heather Café was the only prepossessing restaurant in the town, and they found Forbes sitting at a table at the far end of a long room, rather impatiently awaiting their arrival. As soon as he saw Temple, he pulled a wry face. No luck, he said. I'm damned if we can find the chalet. Didn't you say that you were going to put Inspector Sanford on the case? asked Steve, who had come across Sanford in the days when she was a reporter. Forbes nodded. 
Sanford's been on the lake since ten this morning. He knows this district like the palm of his hand, but I'm damned if he can drop on their hideout. I suppose you've got someone up at Skerry Lodge? queried Temple. Good Lord, yes. The house is practically surrounded, though I'm afraid it's a case of shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. I've got a man watching Mrs. Moffat's shop, too, though I've given him strict instructions to keep well in the background. I thought it might be quite a good idea to allow the old girl plenty of rope, if she really is mixed up with this gang. Then there's just a possibility that she might lead us to the chalet. Temple smiled. There's an old saying that if you give a Scotsman enough rope, he'll start making cigars. And you can rely on Mrs. Moffat to be pretty canny. She's mixed up in this, all right, and I have a hunch that when Z4 does contact the gang, it will be through Mrs. Moffat. But how the devil will she recognize Z4 if they've never met? Quite simple, Sir Graham. Z4 has obviously supplied Mrs. Moffat with some sort of password. I know, interrupted Forbes irritably, but somehow... I can't bring myself to believe that the gang are still ignorant of Z4's identity. Surely by now Van Draper must know it, or possibly guessed. Temple shook his head. No, I don't believe any of them know who Z4 really is, he answered decisively. Forbes shrugged his shoulders helplessly. Well, if that's the case... How the devil can Z4 be absolutely certain that he isn't going to be double-crossed? They can't very well double-cross Z4, if they don't know who Z4 really is, Steve pointed out, with a flicker of amusement. I don't mean it in that sense, Steve. What I mean is that they could refuse to take the slightest notice of Z4's instructions if— And so they would, interposed Temple if it wasn't for that one little factor you seem to be overlooking. Blackmail. Steve stirred her coffee reflectively. You said yourself, Sir Graham, that Z4 knew something about each member of the organization, she reminded him. That was only a theory, Steve, said Forbes, and I'm beginning to doubt if it was a very sound one. On the contrary, Sir Graham, put in Temple calmly. The theory was excellent. Forbes sat up abruptly. What makes you so certain? He demanded curiously. Merely the fact that I happened to discover the little something that Iris was hoping to conceal, and that she felt sure only Z4 knew about. He looked round, as if to make sure there was no possibility of their being overheard. Then he leaned across the small table. You remember the telegram I received? Forbes pursed his lips and nodded. Hotel Martinez, Nice, April 14th, 1932, he quoted. The chief commissioner still retained the habit of committing data of potential importance to memory. Well, that telegram proved to Iris beyond a shadow of doubt that Z4 was not the only person who knew her secret. All the same, she didn't talk, in spite of the telegram. No, said Temple. She didn't talk then, but I think she will. Well, we shall hear all about that when we get Iris to Glasgow, replied Forbes sceptically. Paul, you're being very mysterious about your precious telegram, said Steve. What exactly did it mean? Yes, I've been wondering about that, Temple, said Forbes. Temple beckoned to the waitress and asked her to get him some cigarettes. Yes, Sir Graham. When you told me that in your opinion Z4 had some sort of hold over each member of the organization, I made up my mind to discover just what it was that Iris was anxious to conceal. And did you? asked Forbes rather eagerly. Temple smiled. In 1932, Iris married a young stockbroker by the name of Forrester. They spent their honeymoon, or part of it, at the Martinez Hotel in Nice. On April the 14th, two days after they had arrived at the hotel, Forrester was found dead. 
To all intents and purposes, it was suicide. But... Forbes leaned forward expectantly. Yes, Sir Graham. There was a but. And a rather unpleasant one, I'm afraid, so far as Iris was concerned. But damn it all, Temple, said Forbes. Surely we'd have heard about this. Iris Archer isn't exactly a non-entity. Not at the present time, Temple admitted. But in 1932, Iris was known by the somewhat more fanciful name of Rosie Shiner. Rosie Shiner, repeated Forbes, thoughtfully probing his memory. But what happened about Forrester? asked Steve. Temple took several press cuttings from his wallet and scanned them casually. The whole business, as far as I can gather from the French authorities and also from these clippings, is a bit of a mix-up, said Temple. Iris wasn't actually accused of the murder, but the authorities had a nasty sort of suspicion that she was mixed up in it. The most important witness, however, an English chambermaid who happened to be working at the hotel, suddenly disappeared, and after a short while the matter was more or less dropped. Hmm, grunted Forbes. Well, all this certainly seems to do away with the suspicion that Iris might be Z4. Iris isn't Z4, Sir Graham, Temple quietly assured him. I'm certain on that point. Then who the devil is? queried Forbes irritably. Do you reckon it's Steiner? But we know who Steiner is, don't we, Sir Graham? asked Temple innocently. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Philadelphia. Hmm, murmured Forbes sceptically. He had to admit that he had made no progress with the mildly pleasant Austrian, though he had engaged him in conversation on several occasions. These talks had consisted mainly in endless inquiries from Steiner on the subject of the criminal mind. Forbes had done his best to answer the pertinent questions, but his many efforts to sidetrack the conversation to such subjects as Steiner's private life had met with almost conspicuous failure. Dr. Steiner had proved himself adept at the delicate art of begging the question. The Chief Commissioner abruptly stubbed out his cigarette in an ashtray. "'Of course, there's Rex Bryant,' he said. "'I'm damned if I can make Bryant out, Temple.' "'Yes. After all, we did find his watch-chain on Ernie Weston,' said Steve. Nevertheless, she was reluctant to throw any suspicion on the colleague of her reporting days. "'That isn't necessarily an indication that Bryant was implicated. "'In Weston's murder, I mean,' put in Temple quickly. "'Good heavens, Temple! "'He must be mixed up in this business somehow or other,' snapped Forbes. "'Otherwise, how the devil did Weston get hold of the watch-chain in the first place?' "'I don't think there's any doubt about that,' replied Temple imperturbably. "'He helped himself to it, just as he helped himself to Steiner's cufflinks, and Lady Retford's ring. Lady Retford's ring? echoed Forbes in bewilderment. How do you know the ring belonged to Lady Retford, darling? asked Steve. I made inquiries at the local police station. Quite an obvious procedure, eh, Sir Graham? Temple grinned mischievously. They told me that Lady Retford stayed at the Royal Gate about a fortnight ago. She was only there for a week, but Ernie managed to get hold of the ring all right. Poor old Ernie was an opportunist, if nothing else. Forbes took out his pipe and began to fill it. Yes, but what the devil does all this prove? he demanded. Merely that Ernie Weston was a sort of common pickpocket. It certainly doesn't explain the identity of Z4, said Steve. And another thing, Temple, Forbes persisted. "'If Weston was just an ordinary little kleptomaniac "'and didn't have a row with Rex Bryant "'and wasn't mixed up with all this other business, "'who the devil killed him?' "'Zed for, answered Temple, "'carelessly dropping his cigarette end into his coffee cup. "'But why? In heaven's name, why?' "'Your guess is as good as mine, Sir Graham,' said Temple calmly. "'He deftly extracted another cigarette from the packet.' "'But what is your guess, Temple?' Temple picked up a match, surveyed it intently for a moment, then lit it by scratching it with his fingernail. 
My guess is this, he proceeded, rather more seriously. The moment I arrived at the inn, Weston went through my pockets and found the letter that Lindsay, or Hammond, if you like, had given me. Later, realising that the letter might possibly be of some personal value to me, he returned it. You may remember that the letter was pushed under the door. Forbes was nervously cramming the charge of tobacco into his pipe. Yes, but that doesn't explain why he was murdered, he pointed out. Doesn't it? smiled Temple. Well, this is my theory, Sir Graham. After he had returned the letter, the poor devil must have mentioned the fact to someone, and unfortunately for him, that someone happened to be Z4. Naturally, Z4 wanted the letter before it got into your hands. It was, in fact, absolutely imperative that Hammond's message shouldn't reach you. And yet, Ernie Weston, after having had possession of the letter, had calmly returned it. By Timothy, you can imagine how Z4 felt about it. My God, yes. It's certainly a motive, admitted Forbes with some emphasis. But Weston couldn't have known anything at all about Z4, or he'd have understood the message, Steve interjected. Exactly, nodded Temple. Forbes was obviously intrigued. Look here, Temple. Supposing Bryant started questioning Weston about the watch chain. Weston got a bit nervous, began to suspect Bryant was some sort of police officer, and without thinking, started telling him about the letter. "'Bryant would naturally put two and two together, and the same thing applies to Dr. Steiner, Sir Graham,' Steve interrupted excitedly. "'He may have questioned Weston about his cufflinks. "'Weston may have broken down, as you suggest, and then, without realising its significance, mentioned the letter. "'Incidentally, Steiner could have been responsible for Bryant's watch-chain disappearing, "'planting it on Weston in order to throw suspicion onto Bryant. "'By Timothy, we'll make a detective of you yet, Steve, smiled Temple. Thank you, darling, she replied demurely. Seriously, Temple, don't you think Steiner is Z4? asked Forbes. Temple, who had been listening to the others' theories with just the merest flicker of a smile round the corners of his mobile mouth, pushed back his chair. "'I think it's about time we got back to the Royal Gate, Sir Graham,' he answered pleasantly. "'Perhaps Sandford has some news by now.' Forbes looked at him shrewdly for a moment, then gathered up the cheque which lay on the table, produced some loose change, and beckoned to the waitress. They rose and began to put on their coats. Adjusting his scarf to his satisfaction, Forbes suddenly remarked, "'I see the Golden Clipper had a pretty rough trip the other day.' What was it like when you came across? Perfect, said Steve. We enjoyed every minute of it, didn't we, Paul? Every minute, the novelist corroborated. Forbes sighed. I wish to God I could get away for a month or so. Never been to the States. You'd love it, enthused Steve, extracting her gloves from her husband's overcoat pocket. Oh, well, we might think of it in about a couple of years said Forbes, as they came out of the cafe and stood in the pleasant afternoon sunshine. I've always wanted to travel. As our friend Mrs. Moffat would say, what was it Shakespeare said about travellers? Is that your car over there, Temple? But Temple did not seem to hear him. He stood staring quite vacantly away beyond the roofs of High Moorford to the purple-blue mountains in the distance. What is it, darling? asked Steve, gripping his arm. Did Mrs. Moffat use those actual words, Sir Graham? What was it Shakespeare said about travellers? Why, yes, answered Forbes, a little uncertainly. When? When did she say it? insisted Temple, more urgent now than he had been in the restaurant. Why, the first time I went into the shop replied Forbes. But I can't for the life of me see what you're driving at. By Timothy, what a fool! What an utter fool! Darling, what is it? asked Steve anxiously. Don't you see? Temple brought his glove fist into the palm of the other hand. 
"'Mrs. Moffat said exactly the same thing to me. "'What was it Shakespeare said about travellers? "'If I'd given the right answer, or if you'd given it, Sir Graham, "'she'd have thought we were Zed Four. "'My God!' ejaculated Forbes, patently staggered. "'You mean that's the password?' "'But Temple was once more busy with another train of thought. "'Travellers,' he was muttering to himself. "'What is the quotation? Do you remember it, Steve?' "'She shook her head. "'He turned to Sir Graham, but found no assistance. "'Then Steve pointed to a bookshop a little further down the street, "'and Paul Temple smiled. "'A very polite elderly gentleman came to meet them. "'Have you such a thing as a book of Shakespearean quotations?' asked Temple. The elderly gentleman shook his head. "'I'm afraid there's not much call for it, sir,' he murmured regretfully. "'No, we've several Burns quotations. I'm afraid it must be Shakespeare,' replied Temple firmly. "'Unless you happen to have a book of classical quotations.' "'Why, yes, I believe we have.' "'said the shopkeeper, with the vagueness common to most keepers of bookshops. "'He switched on the light in a dark corner of the shop, "'and after a short interval emerged with a bulky volume. "'This is the only one we have, sir. "'I'm afraid it's ten and six. "'Might I just look through it?' asked Temple. "'With pleasure, sir.' "'Temple turned the pages eagerly. "'Suddenly he stopped.' "'thrust the money into the rather bewildered shopkeeper's hand "'and seized Steve's arm. "'A few seconds later they were on the pavement with Sir Graham. "'Temple reopened the book at the place he had marked and read, "'Travellers ne'er did lie, though fools at home condemn them. "'Forbes looked at Steve and shrugged his shoulders helplessly, "'but Temple seemed to have forgotten their very existence.' "'Though fools at home condemn,' he murmured to himself. "'If only I'd thought of it! "'By Timothy! "'If only I'd thought of it!' "'The plain-clothes man who had been detailed "'to keep an eye on Mrs. Moffat's shop "'was feeling more than a trifle bored. "'So far he'd seen nobody go into the shop "'but the villagers, at least.' He could not imagine them as anything but honest-to-goodness homely Scots, women in shawls, mostly. He was surprised that they never seemed to remain very long in the little shop, just time enough to conduct some humble transaction. Either they were very busy folk in the village, he reflected, or Mrs. Muffet did not encourage them to gossip. This was the only unusual feature of the plain-clothes man's vigil up to date. It wasn't too easy watching any particular objective in this tiny village, particularly in broad daylight. Strangers were naturally conspicuous among such a small population, and the plain-clothes man felt he was already attracting far too much attention. He was thankful when the small public house almost opposite Mrs. Moffat's opened its doors, and he was able to continue watching from the comparative comfort of its bar parlour. Having imbibed three glasses of extra-strong Highland ale, he was feeling rather more pleased with the world, and rather less conscientious about his duties, when he heard a car stop outside. This was something of an event in the quiet little hamlet, and he felt bound to investigate. The plain-clothes man saw two men leave the car and enter the shop. He did not know them, but took a mental note of their appearance. He also went to some trouble to commit the number of the car to memory. Mrs. Moffat seemed to be expecting them, for she at once beckoned them into the room at the back of the shop. "'Ye mustn't stay many minutes,' she informed them. "'There's a man watching the place.' Guest recoiled in some alarm. "'It's all right,' she smiled. "'The nearest telephone is half a mile away from here, "'so it'd be quite a while before he could get a message through.' "'She indicated two vacant chairs. "'What happened about Iris?' she inquired. "'It came off all right,' Guest told her. "'We've just passed her car halfway through a shop window. "'Must have been a hell of a smash. "'They told us she'd been taken to hospital, nearly dead.' 
Mrs. Moffat shook her head, almost sorrowfully. She was a bonny lass, and useful too. But Zed Four can take no chances. Have you heard from Zed Four? asked Guest, a note of eagerness creeping into his voice. Not yet. Van Draper pushed his chair back so that it grated disagreeably on the stone flags. The screen is completed, he growled. Hardwick's ready for him. Why the devil doesn't he come out into the open? Don't worry. He will, Mrs. Moffat calmly assured him. He? Guest took her up at once. Has it occurred to you that Zed Four might be a woman? Both men looked at her keenly, but she betrayed no sign. Perhaps, she murmured, without a trace of emotion in her voice. Well, said Guest, rising and nervously pacing up and down the kitchen, the sooner this business is all wound up, the better I like it. The police have been searching for the damn chalet all day long. It's getting too warm to be pleasant. Don't worry. They won't find the chalet very easily, said Mrs. Moffat. I know that, but Hardwick's getting disagreeable again. Mrs. Moffat shrugged her shoulders. Can't two of you keep a wee man like that quiet? Van Draper spread his hands over the small fire that burned in the grate. There's one thing we do know, he murmured reflectively. Once said Ford does come out into the open, the financial side of the business must be pretty well cleared up. He isn't making a move until he's absolutely certain there's a market for the screen. That's obvious. There's no lack of markets, said Mrs. Moffat. Practically every country in Europe has been bitten by the rearmament bug. No one spoke for a few moments. You seem pretty well informed, Mrs. Moffat commented Van Draper, eyeing her curiously. Of course I'm well informed, she retorted. I use my common sense. I see, said Van Draper. He could not quite make up his mind whether to confront Mrs. Moffat openly with being said for. But eventually he thought better of it. Come along, guest. We'd better get back to the chalet, he declared abruptly, picking up his gloves. Guest nodded. At the door, he turned towards Mrs. Moffat. The moment Zed Four arrives, he began rather nervously. The moment Zed Four arrives, we shall both come down to the chalet, she calmly informed him. The door closed on the visitors. From the public house opposite, the plain-clothes man watched them go. They had been there just eleven minutes by the bar parlour clock. He felt he had earned another glass of extra-strong Highland ale, but instead of ordering the drink, he left the inn and made his way towards the two-seater Morris that was waiting for him at the back of Mrs. Moffat's shop. As he passed the public house and made for the open road, he caught a glimpse of Rex Bryant on the verge of entering the shop. "'Good afternoon,' said Rex pleasantly, as Mrs. Moffat came out of the kitchen. "'Good afternoon. What can I get you?' she demanded, almost in one breath. Rex looked round the shop, taking in its varied stock. Little escaped him, but it was almost second nature for him to observe these things. He could have written a bright half-column on this village emporium straight onto his typewriter without even pausing to cogitate. Sometimes he despised this sixth sense of his, calling it a photographic mind, but he had to admit that it had frequently been useful to him. "'I want some razor-blades,' he said, smiling disarmingly. "'Got any pride of the regiment?' "'No, I'm afraid I haven't,' Mrs. Moffat replied almost mechanically, for she was studying Rex closely rather than paying any attention to what he was saying. "'Good Lord, you should always keep a stock of pride of the regiment,' Rex told her. "'Wouldn't shave with anything else. Makes your face as smooth as a baby's... He broke off suddenly from this light bantering to observe, "'I say, old girl, you'll know me the second time, and no mistake.' "'You've been here before, haven't you?' she said slowly. "'Yes, once or twice. I always patronise the small trader,' smiled Rex. 
Where do you come from now? asked Mrs. Moffat. Where do I come from now? grinned Rex, sketchily mimicking her dialect. I come from Chelsea, Mrs. Moffat. Gay old Chelsea, where girls are girls and men are... Well, that's a moot point. Chelsea, she repeated. That'd be a long way, I'm thinking. You think quite rightly, he laughed. It's fairly near a place called London. I've a married sister in London. Peckham, I think it is. Is there a place called Peckham? Yes, said Rex. There's a place called Peckham. Mrs. Moffat sighed. It must be a wonderful thing to travel, she said. Often wish I had the time, and the money, of course. What was it Shakespeare said about travellers? Rex Bryant picked up a packet of cheap razor blades from off the counter. I think the exact words were, Travellers ne'er did lie, though fools at home condemn them. He looked at the packet, then placed sixpence on the small rubber mat. Travellers ne'er did lie, he murmured, almost to himself. He looked up to find Mrs. Moffat staring full into his eyes. Said for, she breathed, in mingled tones of awe and reverence. Chapter 6 Introducing Zed Four. With guest at the wheel, the car shot away from Mrs. Moffat's shop and was soon bumping over the rough highland road, with moorlands sweeping away to the horizon on either side. For quite a while neither man spoke, each being busy with his thoughts. In situations like this, Van Draper was far more ruthless than Guest, whose nerves had suffered badly in the war. Lawrence Van Draper betrayed not the slightest trace of nerves as he lit a cigarette and asked, "'How far would it be now, Guest?' "'We haven't reached Aberford yet,' replied Guest irritably. "'All right,' grinned Van Draper. I never know my whereabouts in these damn moors and mountains. Give me the cities every time. Guest made no reply. Van Draper lowered the window to throw out the match. I shall be interested to know what's happened to Iris, he said thoughtfully. I shouldn't imagine Iris would get very far. After the way her car was fixed, said Guest, looking straight ahead. We must buy a paper in Aberford. That might tell us something. Yeah, muttered Guest sceptically, for he didn't see how the papers could print the story as quickly as all that. Of course, the fact that Iris was a famous actress might speed things up, particularly if she had been killed. Some local correspondent would probably be making a small fortune out of lineage. I hope to God everything's all right at the chalet, said Guest in rather a worried tone. Van Draper looked surprised. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'Hardwick was pretty furious when we left,' Guest reminded him. "'He was beginning to realise. "'Don't worry, he'll be there all right,' replied Van Draper with a chuckle. "'Houdini himself couldn't have wriggled out of that position.' He laughed again at the recollection of the scene, but this laugh suddenly stopped short. "'What is it?' asked Guest. "'sensing that something was wrong. "'Glancing into the driving mirror, "'Van Draper had caught a glimpse of a black saloon car "'which he had noticed on the main road some distance back. "'They were on a side road now, "'and one that was very little frequented. "'Could the black saloon be following them? "'That car behind,' said Van Draper rather abruptly. "'What about it?' asked Guest, looking into the mirror. "'I saw it before on the main road.' I didn't think they'd follow along here. He turned in his seat and for two or three minutes gazed intently at the road behind. Yes, he's on our tail, all right, he decided at last. What are we going to do? asked Guest, nervously licking his lips. Keep your head, snapped Van Draper, looking round again. There only seems to be one man inside, and we can deal with him, all right. He looked back again 
as the pursuing car came a little nearer. Van, we can't do much more on this road, said Guest, as they bumped along at nearly fifty miles an hour. Very well. Slow down, ordered Van Draper. When he gets level with you, force him over to the side. But Van, we can't possibly do as I say, shouted Van Draper, suddenly very angry. In situations like this, he was used to taking command. Guest gritted his teeth. All right. You've asked for it, he replied, as he took his foot off the accelerator. During the next hundred yards, the approaching car drew level. Guest drew well into the side of the road. When the bonnet of the second car was right at their side, Van Draper suddenly called out, Let him have it. Now! Guest wrenched at the wheel, and the pursuing car bounced away from them as a rugby footballer hands off an opponent. But they had forgotten that their pursuer's speed was greater than theirs, and they suffered even more from the impact. Look out! cried Van Draper. He's skidding! My God! The cars collided with far greater force than they anticipated, and the shock sent each of them into the ditch on opposite sides of the road. Guest heard the windscreen splinter, felt the driving wheel smite him in the chest, then remembered nothing else. When he recovered consciousness some time later, he could see that the driving wheel had saved him from the fate of Van Draper, who had been flung towards the windscreen. For a moment, Guest could hardly believe it. Gingerly, he felt himself all over, then dragged himself towards Van Draper. Van, are you all right? he cried in a hoarse voice that he hardly recognized as his own. Van, Van, he called desperately and shook the inert form. Suddenly realizing that Van Draper was dead, Guest came very near to panic. Feverishly, he searched in a cubbyhole under the windscreen and found a small flask of brandy. After taking a long pull, he felt much better. Then he thought of the other car. What if the man had escaped and was waiting for him? But there was no sign of life. Guest went up to the other car and saw that the driver had been flung against the side window. He had received a severe blow on the head which was badly cut. The car, however, seemed to be far less damaged than his own. Guest looked desperately in all directions. Someone might come along at any minute. His brain began to work swiftly. By a tremendous shove, he managed to restore the Morris to an even keel. Then he started the engine. After a slight pause, he lifted out the inert body and laid it on the roadside. Just as he was about to climb back into the car, Guest paused, then went over to the body of Van Draper. Without stopping to discriminate, he thrust all the letters and papers he found into his own pockets. He carefully backed the police car onto the road again and headed for the chalet. Yes said Rex Bryant evenly. Z4. He looked Mrs. Moffat straight in the eyes and favoured her with a smile that had gained him many an interview from unwilling politicians. For once, Mrs. Moffat betrayed her excitement. We've been waiting for you. My God, how we've waited. I was beginning to think you'd leave it too late, she said. "'Can't we go into the back parlour?' said Rex. "'It's rather difficult talking here.' "'Why, yes, of course.' She nodded eagerly and was about to lead the way. Then she paused and went to the shop door, which she bolted carefully top and bottom. "'Mind the first step,' she adjured. "'It's a bit tricky in the dark.' Rex followed her into the back room. She turned and faced him. We followed out your instructions about Iris, she rapidly informed him. About Iris, repeated Rex, slightly bewildered. Why, of course, about Iris and the car. Oh, yes, said Rex, recovering his composure. About Iris and the car. Now, uh, let's see. But surely you remember said Mrs. Moffat, somewhat puzzled. 
There was hardly a noticeable pause before Rex said, "'Yes, yes, of course. I was thinking of something else.' As an afterthought, he added, "'How is Iris?' "'We haven't heard,' said Mrs. Moffat quietly. "'Not yet.' "'Oh,' said Rex blankly. "'I see.' "'And Hardwick?' Mrs. Moffat took a deep breath. "'The screen is finished,' she told him. "'Good,' said Rex. "'And how are things at your end?' Mrs. Moffat demanded rather nervously. "'Are the arrangements complete?' "'Yes,' said Rex, taking out a cigarette. "'Quite complete. Uh, "'Did you have much trouble with Hardwick?' "'Not at first. "'He was too bitter about things. "'Now he seems rather difficult.' "'Difficult?' "'Yes. "'At times he gets almost violent. "'The poor devil can't understand why we moved him to the chalet.' "'No,' said Rex.' I suppose he can't. He blew out a cloud of smoke, then asked as casually as possible, How far do you reckon the chalet is from here? How far? echoed Mrs. Moffat, surprised. But you know where the chalet is as well as I do. Of course, replied Rex easily. But I've never been there. Never been there? "'But you had the place made ready for us,' cried Mrs. Mufford. "'It was ye who—' She broke off in obvious alarm. Her placid features had lost their immobile expression. Her mouth was twitching with obvious excitement. "'My God! You're not said for!' she gasped. Rex threw his half-smoked cigarette into the fireplace. "'I'm sorry to disappoint you, Mrs. Mufford, but you're quite right.' "'I am not said for,' he said calmly. "'She made a sudden movement in the direction of the door. "'Stand away from that door,' he ordered sharply. "'His right hand was in his coat pocket. "'If I were you, Mrs. Moffat, I should sit down,' he advised. "'I'd hate to spoil this perfectly good suit by shooting through the coat pocket.' "'Mrs. Moffat relapsed onto a nearby chair. "'Who are you?' she mouthed. Who the devil? All in good time, Mrs. Moffat, all in good time, he cut in curtly. Then his eye caught sight of a telephone standing on a side table. Is that switch true? he asked. She nodded without speaking. Rex went over and picked up the receiver. Hello. Inverdale 83, please. Yes, 83. He placed a hand over the mouthpiece and turned to Mrs. Moffat again. Now, Mrs. Moffat, perhaps you'll have the goodness to tell me more about the chalet. She shook her head. I'll tell you nothing. My dear Mrs. Rex was beginning when he broke off. Hello. Inverdale 83. Is that the Royal Gate? Will you get Mr. Temple at once? Yes, Mr. Paul Temple. All right. I'll hold the line. He turned to Mrs. Moffat once more. There's nothing like patience, is there, Mrs. Moffat? He demanded cheerfully. Nothing like patience. The lounge of the Royal Gate Hotel opened directly from the entrance hall and was really little more than a glorified sitting room. There were the usual reproductions of Highland pictures. In fact, it was very like the lounge of dozens of private hotels in Kensington and Bloomsbury. However, the armchairs were comfortable, and Paul Temple and Steve often sat there after meals. They were gossiping idly with Sir Graham when the latter suddenly yawned and stretched himself. "'I'm expecting a telephone call from Wright,' he told them. "'Otherwise, I'd go to my room and snatch forty winks.' The chief commissioner looked tired, for he had been getting rather less than six hours' sleep in each twenty-four of late.' "'Who's right, Sir Graham?' Steve wanted to know. "'The fellow I've got watching Mrs. Moffat's place,' he told her. "'Oh, yes,' said Temple, suddenly alert. "'I'd almost forgotten about him.' Steve, who was facing the door, looked up suddenly to see rather a strange figure framed in the doorway. 
It was Mrs. Weston, wearing outdoor clothes, which gave her an unfamiliar appearance. Her coat was sensible, and if her hat was not in the current fashion, it seemed to suit her. Steve noticed that she wore black stockings and neat shoes, which were nevertheless well adapted for walking highland roads. "'Going out, Mrs. Weston?' asked Steve, finding it difficult to conceal the surprise in her voice. Somehow one never imagined Mrs. Weston going far beyond the royal gate. That was her domain, and it took her all her time to look after it. "'I, just down to the village,' Mrs. Weston nodded. "'It'll be a nice walk.' "'smiled Steve pleasantly. "'It doesn't look too bright to me,' replied Mrs. Weston dubiously. "'There's a mist coming down the mountain.' "'Don't worry,' said Steve. "'It'll keep fine, all right.' "'Well, I do hope so, I'm sure,' said Mrs. Weston diffidently. "'At that moment, the young man who had taken Ernie Weston's place "'as porter and man of all work came to the door. "'What is it, Alec?' "'asked Mrs. Weston. "'Telephone,' answered Alec laconically. "'Didn't you find out who it was for?' "'He seemed bewildered by her query, "'and with a muttered exclamation she went to the telephone. "'Looks like your call, Sir Graham,' said Steve, and he rose. "'But Mrs. Weston returned to inform them, "'It's for Mr. Temple.' "'Thanks,' said Temple, in a toneless voice, and went out to the tiny office across the hall. "'Ah, well, I'd better be off,' said Mrs. Weston. "'I think maybe I'll take my umbrella after all, just to be on the safe side.' They could hear her ferreting in the large iron umbrella stand outside. "'Mrs. Weston seems to have taken things rather well, doesn't she?' commented Sir Graham casually. "'Yes,' agreed Steve. "'She does, rather.' It hadn't occurred to her before. "'I wonder what she really thinks about all this,' went on Forbes. "'After all, when two men are murdered under your very nose, as it were, and one of them happens to be your husband into the bargain, then surely—' A warning cough from Steve brought his speculations to a conclusion. He swung round to see the huge form of Dr. Steiner in the doorway. "'Good afternoon, Mrs. Temple,' smiled the Austrian. "'Good afternoon, sir.' "'Good afternoon,' answered Forbes, without enthusiasm. "'Just out for a stroll?' "'Ja,' Steiner nodded with a twinkle in his eye. "'Ja, wenn man ein bisschen dick ist, muss man abends spazieren gehen.' "'And what does that mean, doctor?' asked Steve, who found herself liking Steiner in spite of the atmosphere of suspicion that surrounded him. "'It means—' replied the professor, that when one is fat, one should take plenty of exercise. Sir Graham grunted. He had hoped it would mean something rather different. Steiner turned to go. We shall meet later, I hope, at dinner. Of course, said Steve. Then for the time being, Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen, she smiled. Forbes watched him go with a thoughtful frown. "'I'm damned if I can make head or tail of that fellow,' he told Steve, with some exasperation in his voice. Steve smiled to herself. Somehow she could not believe that Dr. Steiner was a hardened criminal. The chief commissioner looked up sharply as Temple re-entered. "'Well?' "'That was Bryant,' said Temple quietly. "'He's at Mrs. Moffat's.' "'Rex Bryant? What the devil is he doing there?' Well, I'm rather afraid I sent him there, Temple confessed. You sent him, echoed Sir Graham, in mingled surprise and indignation. Temple nodded. But, darling, why? asked Steve. Temple resumed his seat and leaned forward eagerly. Immediately I realised that we knew the true significance of the quotation. In other words, the means by which Z4 intended to contact the organisation— I telephoned Bryant. What was the point in that? I instructed him to visit Mrs. Moffat's, and by means of the quotation pass himself off as Z4. Then Rex isn't Z4, said Steve at once. Of course not. Well, what's happened? asked Forbes. Temple became more serious. 
"'I was hoping,' he continued, "'that Mrs. Moffat might be completely taken in by Rex "'and divulge the exact whereabouts of the chalet. "'Unfortunately, that scheme hasn't worked out quite as well as I anticipated. "'Mrs. Moffat hasn't escaped. "'Oh, no. Rex is taking care of that all right. "'I lent him a revolver. "'He said he'd be scared stiff to use it, "'but I expect he looks the part all right. "'Then there's nothing to worry about.' "'said Forbes excitedly. "'Z-4 is still bound to contact Mrs. Moffat. "'We'll get Z-4, Temple, if I have to arrest the whole village. "'I hardly think that will be necessary, Sir Graham.' "'Forbes nodded. "'Look here. "'We'd better join Bryant as soon as we possibly can. "'For all we know, Z-4 might turn up at Mrs. Moffat's "'while we are hanging around here. "'I'll leave that to you, Sir Graham,' said Temple. "'Rising. I've got an appointment at High Moorford, which is rather important.' "'An appointment at High Moorford?' repeated Forbes, who quite failed to see the point in this. "'Yes,' replied Temple. "'With Iris Archer.' "'You're joking!' Temple shook his head. "'You don't mean to say Iris escaped from the train?' "'I'm afraid so,' said Temple. "'Van Draper and Guest had a car waiting for her. "'The car was tampered with, "'so that the steering collapsed about twenty minutes after she'd started. "'Good God! What happened?' "'Fortunately, Iris escaped with a pretty bad shaking. "'She's meeting me at the Shepley Hotel, High Moorford. "'That trick with the car didn't exactly please Iris, Sir Graham.' "'You think she'll talk?' "'I'm sure of it.' "'The Chief Commissioner was now much more cheerful "'and openly delighted with the turn of events. "'Things are looking up, Temple,' he enthused. "'Even if we can't find out about the chalet from Mrs. Moffat, "'we still have another string to our bow. "'We'll find the chalet, all right,' Temple assured him. "'You see, Van Draper and Guest visited Mrs. Moffat's shop, "'and according to Rex, who arrived on the scene just as they were leaving, "'your man is tailing them. "'That's why he hasn't telephoned. "'So, if Van Draper and Guest are on their way to the chalet, Wright can't miss it. "'Things are certainly looking up.' "'Paul, it's nearly five. Steve reminded him. "'Yes, of course,' said Temple, moving to the door. "'We'll meet you at Mrs. Moffat's in about an hour, Sir Graham.' "'Why at Mrs. Moffat's?' asked Steve. "'Paul Temple smiled. "'Because Mrs. Moffat is expecting Z-4, he said. "'And I'd rather like to be there when Z-4 arrives.' "'John Hardwick sat hunched in the chair to which he had been tied "'and gloomily reviewed the situation. "'Van Draper and Guest had trusted him so rigorously "'that he had great difficulty in making the slightest movement. "'Suddenly he gave vent to a deep, sarcastic laugh.' This was certainly a rather ironical position for him to be in. Here he was, with the screen finally completed, and he was tied up like a mummy in full view of his own efforts. Rather wistfully, he eyed the gleaming apparatus, the notebooks and plans scattered over his workbench, and wondered if he would ever use them again. Guest and Van Draper had seemed pretty desperate, but they had not threatened him with death. Obviously they, or this mysterious Z-4 he had heard them mention, hoped to have some future use for him. Otherwise, he believed they would have liquidated him without any further ado. It was rather ironical to reflect that he had completed his final tests that very morning and was now in a position to put on paper the exact specification of the Hardwick beam working in conjunction with the screen. With a grim smile... He congratulated himself that he had not committed quite all the final layout to paper. In this respect, he had maintained his usual procedure. True, there were some calculations on scraps of paper in the waste paper basket that might afford some clue to an expert who also had the plans on the bench. Blueprints were strewn everywhere on the working benches, on a table in the corner, even on the floor round his ankles. In the final frenzy of completing the beam, Hardwick had consulted one print after another, hurriedly casting them aside when they had served their purpose. With a rueful grimace, he strained against his bonds. They had omitted to tie his hands together, 
but the cords were very tight round his arms and body and securely fastened to the back of the chair. After a while, he discovered that his left wrist was not fastened so tightly as the right, and eventually he managed to extricate it. Then, in his impatience to free himself completely, he struggled to extract a cigarette lighter from his waistcoat pocket. It took a little time as the cords passed right over the pocket. But he got the lighter at last, pressed the spring, and a tiny flame leapt into being. Just as he was applying it to the cord, a spasm of pain as a result of his cramped position shot through his hand, and the lighter fell to the floor amongst the blueprints. It was out of reach of his feet, which were tied firmly to the chair. The blueprints smouldered, and a tiny wisp of flame rose almost reluctantly from the pile. Then a pale flame licked round the edges of a large roll. Hardwick strained frantically at the cord round his left arm, but the pain persisted, and it was agony to move. Two pieces of tracing paper were well alight by now, and in desperation Hardwick flung himself, together with the chair, on top of them, in the hope of smothering the flames. Desperately Hardwick rolled to and fro, coughing and choking. Giving the cord of the outboard motor turntable a final flick to set the engine whirring, Guest suddenly caught sight of a wisp of smoke on the other side of the L-shaped lake. The chalet lay right at the other extremity, effectively concealed by a small outjutting headland. Guest was too worried about recent events to give much thought to the distant curl of smoke. When he was nearly halfway across the lake, he noticed that its volume had considerably increased. Even then he had some vague idea that it might emanate from some gorse which the shepherds were often burning in the hills. But as Guest steered round the headland, he suddenly gave vent to an exclamation and opened the throttle to the full. The chalet, built almost entirely of wood, was blazing with a fierce crackle that he could hear a quarter of a mile away. Already the roof had caught fire, and the flames were licking round the eaves. Guest ran the boat almost up to the tiny beach before shutting off the engine and the prow hissed through the soft shingle. Without waiting to secure the boat, he hastened the two hundred yards to the chalet as quickly as he could. He was not in particularly good condition, and he could feel the blood pulsing through his ears as he came within a few yards of the fire. A wave of heat swept over him, and its fierce intensity brought him to a halt. Even if help had been at hand... He doubted if it would have been possible to make any impression on the fire. He tried another tack, moving round to the side, hoping that the flames had perhaps a lesser hold on the rear part of the chalet. But he was disappointed, and even as he stepped onto the terrace at the back, the roof fell in with the terrifying rumble of a minor landslide. "'Poor devil!' murmured Guest to himself. In his army days he had seen many men die— but in most cases the coup had been swift and, he imagined, almost painless. For some unaccountable reason, he found that certain incidents from those futile years of 1914 to 18 flashed before him as he watched the final phases of the fire. Well, that's the end of the Hardwick screen, he murmured to himself, and for the first time he asked himself if the world would be any the worse for the loss. He had seen the Pretz gun spell swift annihilation to thousands who, but for that invention, would be living today. There was no doubt, reflected Guest, the successful disposal by Z-4 of the Hardwick screen would certainly have precipitated another war. You're a sentimental weakling, he reproved himself. I expect it's just sour grapes if the truth's known. Having eventually decided that it would be impossible to salvage anything from the fire, he turned and slowly retraced his steps to the lake. Despite the stern discipline of his army years, Guest was a rather more humane type than Van Draper. As is invariably the case, his extra intelligence was accompanied by a somewhat morbid outlook on life. That Guest was gifted in certain directions, there could be no doubt. His knowledge of the Pretz gun was quite equal to that of the inventor. He had himself hit upon one or two extra refinements to this terrible weapon, and it was the illegal manufacture of these guns for export which had landed him in the clutches of Z-4. The death of Van Draper had upset Guest, 
rather more than he would have admitted to most people. And although Hardwick had been an awkward devil just lately, Guest wouldn't have wished his worst enemy a death of this description. He came to the boat, and turned once more to look at the smouldering ruins. All their weeks and months of planning and subterfuge had literally gone up in smoke. All they had to show for it was a hornet's nest. The police had probably found Van Draper by this time, and no doubt they would soon identify him. After that, they would be on the lookout for Z4, who was supposed to be en route to Inverdale. Perhaps, thought Guest, he had better return to Mrs. Moffat's. On second thoughts, however, he decided that it would be better to lie low for a day or two, somewhere within easy reach, and where he was not likely to be conspicuous. There was an hotel in High Moorford that should serve his purpose. Abruptly, Guest turned his back on the remains of the chalet in an effort to blot out the feeling of futile despair that was creeping over him. He picked up the piece of string and passed it round the turntable. The engine came to life for a second, then coughed and was silent. Guest looked at the petrol tank. It was empty. With an imprecation, he got into the boat and pushed off with the single oar. The prospect of half an hour's rowing was not attractive in his present condition. What he badly needed was a good, stiff double whisky.'